Listening to Largely the Truth with Brennan Store. To all you restless sleepers and midnight creepers, bleary eyed truckers in the graveyard shift, this is Brennan Store, and you're listening to Largely the Truth. Whether you're staring at a screen or the lines on the road, all is well. For the next little while, it's going to stay that way. Because I'm here, you're there. And together, we're going to explore the night. Welcome back to Largely the Truth. I am your host, Brennan Storr, and this is the Internet's favorite podcast. The Internet just doesn't know it yet. I hope this finds you well, folks. I am glad to be back. I spent a few days over in the big city of Vancouver. I mean, big relative to where I live. Visiting some friends I hadn't seen since before the pandemic. And I got to tell you, it is a nice thing to be able to do. I know all this nonsense isn't over yet, but hopefully a year from now we'll be able to say otherwise. And until then, I think it's just a matter of trying to take what joy we can. And speaking of joy, I have a great interview for you this week. I was lucky enough to sit down with author Fonda Lee, who has written a number of books, Zero Boxer, Exo, Crossfire, and the Green Bone Trilogy. And we'll be talking primarily about the Greenbone Trilogy on this episode, and that is because the final installment, Jade Legacy, will be out at the end of this month. And now, you'll hear me talk about it in the show itself, so I won't dwell on it too much here. But folks, I just gotta say, I don't usually read fantasy. I have a hard time wrapping my brain around it. But after finding her work on Twitter and picking up the first book, Jade City, I ended up reading that and its sequel in about 10 days, which for me, given my schedule, is not something I ordinarily do. That's about 1,100, 1,200 pages, but it grabs you from the get-go. As someone who loves high drama and uh, Hong Kong cinema and uh, world-building, we talk a lot about world-building in this conversation. It's something for which I have a deep, deep appreciation. Before we get there, though, I want to remind you that if you want an ad-free feed and bonus content when available, head on over to patreon.com slash largely the truth. That's patreon.com slash largely the truth. And for $2 a month, you get to skip the ads and you get bonus conversations when available. Last week, we spoke to Elliot Wilder of The Revenants, and there is a brief bonus conversation that should be online by the time you hear this. So again, that's patreon.com slash largely the truth. With that out of the way, it's time to sit back, relax, and reach out to Fonda Lee, author of the Green Bone Saga. With her debut novel, Zero Boxer, my guest tonight established herself as a unique voice in the science fiction field, combining technology with martial arts to produce a thrilling story of the far future. Her next two novels, Exo and Crossfire, envisioned a world where mankind is firmly under alien control until one young man joins the fight. Then, in 2019, she released Jade City, the first in what would become the sprawling Green Bone Saga a modern fantasy epic. In Jade City, the rival No-Peak and Mountain Clans rule the streets of Janloon, capital of Kekon, and home to the world's only source of bioenergetic jade. That jade fuels not only the nation's economy, but the clan's green bone warriors, giving them superhero-like abilities 
they used to war for control of their country's future. Its sequel, Jade War, broadened the first novel's scope, incorporating international politics into its street-smart martial arts narrative. And now, with the upcoming release of Jade Legacy, author Fonda Lee is bringing her incredible trilogy to a close. Fonda, welcome to Largely the Truth. Thanks for having me, Brennan. It's a pleasure to have you here. Like I was saying before, the uh, when we were talking uh, off-air, I blew through the first two books in about 10 days, which I, I'm, I, I like reading, but usually not that much, uh, but they're just compulsively readable. And they're fat books too, so I'm impressed. <laughs> Yeah, that was, yeah. When, when I realized the timing of everything, I thought, okay, Store, you may have overcommitted this time, but I, I got there. I got there. So I, I'd like to talk about your initial inspiration for the series, but before we do, I, I kind of wanted to spend a little bit of time on your career path because on a past episode of the show, we had a, or I had a financial, uh, pardon me, an investment advisor who had started out as a fiction author. And when that didn't really pan out the way he wanted, he went into finance and you've sort of had the opposite journey. You started out in the corporate world. And then you came to writing. Can you talk a little bit about that? I had a 10-year-long career in corporate strategy and finance before I said, screw this, I want to write science fiction and fantasy novels. So uh, I'm, I'm having a hard time imagining the opposite scenario in which I go back to finance, but I guess the grass is always greener. I have <laughs> always been a writer, uh, wrote on the bus when I was in fifth grade wrote during biology class when I was in high school, wrote fan fiction when I was in college. So I always had that creative streak um, and never thought that it could become a real profession. Either I didn't have any particular role models when I was growing up and didn't envision that, uh, that I could become a, an author because I thought they were almost just removed magical beings what <laughs> they weren't didn't have real jobs like lawyers and doctors and accountants uh, so i always just thought of it as a hobby and had a pipe dream that i would one day write a novel the way that people say things like one day i'm going to run a marathon uh, or right. you know one day i'm going to climb a mountain and i had my uh, my my corporate career going. I had a, a young children at the time um, and a busy life uh, that didn't really leave room for creativity anymore. And I hit this point where I realized that I was missing something. Um, and it actually came about at a time in my career when I was in discussion with my manager as to what my next step was and you know did I want to try and aim for for becoming uh, you know a marketing person did I want to become a general manager did I want my boss's job one day and right I, I kind of had one of those uh, life reevaluation moments where I'm doing all this career visioning stuff and came to the realization actually I don't want my boss's job. I don't want my boss's boss's job. What right. do I really want to do? I want to write stories. I used to have so much fun writing stories. That used to be my 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 go-to place. Uh, so I decided, you know what, I'm going to cut back on my day job, get serious about this pipe dream that I've always had, because I'm not getting any younger, and uh, committed myself to doing writing classes and setting myself goals, finishing a manuscript, trying to find an agent, 
And yeah, then one thing led to another and I, I wrote a book. It was fun. And I thought I could do this again. And I wrote another book and here I am. And so now your first book was not published, correct? The first completed manuscript? Yeah. My very first manuscript, I sent around to a bunch of agents and got a little bit of interest, but it didn't go anywhere. And then I wrote my next manuscript, which became my debut. Right, 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 right. Has it always been science fiction for you? It's always been speculative fiction, uh, okay. either science fiction or fantasy. And that just comes down to what I loved to read when I was young. When right, I was a okay. kid, I just got lost in magic worlds or far future stories and was reading Chronicles of Prydain and Narnia and Lord of the Rings and then Asimov and Bradbury and you know, just all, all the science fiction and fantasy that I could, I could get my hands on. And I was saying to you off air that one of the things I found uh, really fascinating about the Green Bone Saga, which we'll talk about in, in greater detail here in a bit, is that I had always thought fantasy meant exclusively dragons and mages and, and things like this. And I, I, was never, I was never able to really get into Lord of the Rings. Some people tried to get me to read the Belgaria and Wheel of Time, and it was just like planting seeds in the Dust Bowl. I got, you know, maybe... 30 pages in, even Dune, you know, and, uh, you know, despite loving the film, which again, if we get a chance, I'd love to talk to you about, cause I know you were also a fan, the book itself, it was just gone. So finding that, you know, as I say, speculative fiction and adult fantasy doesn't have to be that, that it can also take place in a modern world was, was very, very cool. Absolutely. The Greenbone Saga was a mashup of different influences that I loved. And I didn't really ever stop to think, oh, well, fantasy is this or science fiction is this because for me what's most interesting is taking different influences and seeing what I can do when I put them together and play with them so the green bone saga when i first envisioned it i had no story yet i had no plot or characters i just had vibes it was just oh, an okay. aesthetic i wanted right. to tell a story that was modern era but had magic set in a burgeoning Asia-inspired metropolis and that evoked my favorite gangster crime dramas and also kung fu flicks and right. fantasy all together. And then I thought, okay, well, how do I make that work and make it feel real and make it feel grounded? So that was the task I set for myself. And then it came together as this, like, I had this vision that it would, at the core of it, there would be this family saga. So that's what I built it around. And I certainly have felt that the fantasy genre, thankfully, has broadened and really bloomed in the last decade in terms of what authors are doing. And it is not just, I, I certainly felt the same way you did growing up, that fantasy was some variation on either Tolkien or Dungeons and Dragons, which was itself a, a, a highly influenced by Tolkien. So that was the, that's the, um, the genesis of what most people think of when they think epic fantasy. Um, right. And that is certainly not the case today. I mean, I look at all the fellow authors who are, who are writing in the genre, and absolutely, you can still find some great sword and sorcery stuff out there. But there is so much more to this genre than people who grew up playing D&D &D would perhaps believe. Right. Yeah. I, I was listening to an interview you gave and you were talking to the fellow about 
I think it was a flintlock fantasy right. being one one genre, which I'd never never even heard of. Yeah, I was talking to Brian McClellan, who writes that's the it. Powder Mage trilogy. And that's fantasy set in a gunpowder era. Think like French Revolution. Interesting. Oh, I, I'm going to have to check that out because as I said, now I've got the bug and I've got, what, three weeks before Legacy comes out. So I, I've got to film at the time with something. I'm really curious because, you, as you say, you mentioned the the family aspect of the of the Greenbone saga, and that's uh, the characters are are wonderful, and, and I find myself uh, very attached to them. Which again, you know, is uncommon for me in fiction. You know, that there's a car bomb, uh, you know, it, in Jade War. I gasped. <laughs> you know, we w- we won't spoil it for anyone, but I gasped. Your previous novels were single protagonist, right? Yes. So that was a real graduation in terms of um, scale having it to keep track was. of all of those things. Yeah, it was a it was a uh, exponentially more complex story because of the multiple points of view. Uh, I am honestly glad that I did those other three novels first because one thing that they taught me was how to keep a narrative tight. I had to write a story that was from the point of view of the single protagonist and so when I started writing a novel that had multiple protagonists, uh, I still thought of the novel as having a single protagonist, and that is the family. And each point of view character is a different view into the uber protagonist, um, that being the call family. And uh, I have, I've said this on a few occasions, um, you know, that sometimes you get an idea and it's fantastic, but you're not ready to write it yet. I came up with the idea right. for Jade City back in 2013. So this is two years before my debut novel came out. And it was, it, it, like I said, I know plot, I know characters. I just had vibes. I just had this, this aesthetic sense of what it would feel like. But I knew that it was going to be big. I knew that it was going to have multiple point of view characters. And that was, it was going to take place on this much larger canvas than what I was currently working on at the time. So I shelved it and I kept noodling on it and thinking about it. And I started working on it when I felt ready. Because there are times as a writer that what you want to write is somewhere above what your current writing chops are. And it's like any other skill, any other profession, you have to build up your abilities. Um, And you can learn, of course, the only way to do that is to actually write and, and to to learn it in the process of doing it. So Jade City was a project that I knew was going to be big, and I gave it a bit of space before I settled down to actually tackle it. Right. And so, as again, as I've mentioned, I think in my first email to you, I mentioned that the world you've built is so expansive. And I have to wonder, is that something that you built as the idea was percolating, or did that all come once you'd actually sat down to write? It was definitely part of the development process. World building is one of my favorite topics. I'm a world building junkie. I love it. In order to actually uh, to develop it to the extent that I did, I sort of had to tackle it in layers. So there's, um, there's the pre-writing world building, which is figuring out, you know, what is this world? How does the, in this case, the magical jade that makes up such a large part of the story work? How is this society organized? What is the history of this nation? What is the culture of these people? And then along the way, there's these different layers of world building that drill down into things like, okay, what are the districts of this city? What's the weather like at these different 
times of year. Of course. And then you get even more granular down to what is the make of uh, this character's luxury car and what's the name of this restaurant. And so there's all these layers to world building that as you go along and you write, you get into more specific detail and more nuance so that hopefully by the end of it, it feels like a real place. That's really my goal is to create a fantasy world with a great deal of verisimilitude where the reader feels like they can get on an airplane and go to the place and go to Kcon and walk in the streets of John Lude and go into the Twice Lucky and have the crispy squid balls. That's my goal. I was just going to say that that is my great regret that I will never have those crispy squid balls. I'm still waiting for a fan to send me a, a good recipe. So <laughs> anyone listening, you've got a great crispy squid ball recipe, let me know. I second this. Something I was curious about, because when I was, for me, when I was reading growing up, I was more into detective fiction and crime fiction. And one of my favorite series uh, that I could find, because I grew up in a pretty small town, was Ed McBain's uh, 87th Precinct series, which was all a different you know, s series of cop stories set in a fictional city. But McBain, as I recall, he refused to ever produce a map of the city of Isola because he felt it would be restrictive. And I'm curious because in, in the opening of both uh, city and ward, you've got not just country maps, but city maps. And I wondered, did you ever find that restricting or did you actually find having those anchors to be more liberating? There comes an inflection point in the process. So early on, I don't draw any maps. I just tell the story because I want the freedom to change locations, to add new districts, to move something from another place. I don't want to be locked in to the story because of a map, um, which is really just an arbitrary creation at that point. Right. So I don't do any of that up front. After the story is written, then I draw the map. And I, at that point, start filling in additional gaps. And that process can sometimes unlock more cool material that I'll be like, oh, okay, well, I just made this district. What's that district like? I bet I can bring that into the story in some way in the future. So I have this build it when I need it and then use the building of it to uh, see if there's, there's more avenues that I can explore. And the same thing goes for the world map because um, Jade, Jade City takes place entirely in the city of John Loon. Um, but Jade War expands out and you see other countries and the characters go to other parts of the world. So I did not draw that world map until I needed to. Um, after right. I had had, I figured out what the storyline of Jade War was and where they were going. Then I drew the map. So it's a, it, it's definitely a, I, I can see how um, writers would, would go either way. There's some I know who want to draw the map right up front because that's right. part of their process. And there's definitely those like, uh, like you mentioned, who don't want to ever commit it to paper because then, then they can't move the rails of the sandbox anymore. <laughs> right, right. Well, in establishing that world, you know, there's all these little touches that give it this ring of authenticity. And I mean, obviously the religions you've established help do that, but there was this little moment um, I wanted to specifically single out in City when open clan war breaks out in the streets, one character mentions that foreign governments have issued travel advisories to KCON. 
And I just thought that was such a great, it's, it's almost a, I don't want to say throwaway line, but it's, it's just said in passing, but it's such a great, uh, such a great, uh, great concept because that's what would happen. And it, it just sell, helps sell that moment so much more. And as I say, those little moments are sprinkled throughout the books. Are those intentional to ground the story or are they just something that happens organically as part of the process? They are, they're both. They're organic, but they are also very intentional. Uh, they, right. And it comes from me considering the second, third, fourth order effects of things that happened in the plot. Because, you know, this, this takes place in a, in a modern era, um, one that is analogous to latter half of our 20th century and that many people will find familiar and recognizable. So it feels like a miss to not mention those little things that, you know, what would actually happen under certain circumstances. Uh, you know, of course, there'd be journalists asking about this, or there would be you know, the travel advisory, or of course, if there was this, this substance that only certain people could use, there would be governments and organizations trying to crack the scientific code on that and make a sure. profit. So magic in, in, this, in this world, and I never use the word magic, but this, this speculative element, the, the jade that gives people powers, would be just a subject to forces of politics and capitalism and, and societal change the same way anything else in our, our current world would be. The time period uh, you've chosen is sort of um, never out and out said, I think, but it seems to be sort of a mid to, mid to late nineties. Would that be correct? It is. So I'm not specific about it because it's not our world right. and, but it's clearly a, a modern, but pre-digital analog. Yeah. And I pegged it as kind of, if you imagine somewhere between sixties and eighties when Jane okay. City starts. That's, right, right. That was where I pegged it. But I also uh, didn't want to ever be specific in that way because sure. um, I didn't want to be tied to anything in our real world. I didn't want to, you know, and if I said, hey, this is analogous to 1972, you know, people are going to start looking at real events and be like, is there going to be a space race, a Bay of Pigs invasion? Right, you know? of course. So I wanted to, in the same way that fantasy authors who work in ancient settings Get, they get a huge amount of leeway in terms right. of, you know, is this like the 12th century or the 13th century or the 14th? Nobody questions that, right? You know, like, yeah. Okay, vaguely ancient. Nobody asks, well, I don't know, is this 1452? <laughs> so, uh, you know, <laughs> right. I, but, it, but as you get closer to, a, to current date and into time periods that people actually feel familiar with, sometimes they, they do ask like, well, what, what, when is it? And I, right. I kind of hand wave that to some extent <laughs> because I want them to have a sense of roughly in history where that is, but not uh, be tied to anything specific in our world. Uh, a while back, I was having a conversation with another author on Twitter. He's got published, uh, pardon me, produced screenplays, but he is working on a science fiction novel and he was struggling to deepen the narrative to what he felt was an appropriate level for a book. And, you know, again, as I mentioned, um, I've been working on fiction myself and something that's occurred to me is my sense of narrative has been for so long, I think, shaped by the films I watch. So my sense of narrative is very tied. Those beats are very tied to the way a film would work. And, and he said pretty much the same thing. He said he realized this has really affected him and you're a film fan yourself. So obviously these books are not, are not tied to those things. How have you managed to, to avoid those pitfalls? 
I don't think I actively try to. I think okay. that I am, like you mentioned, definitely a film fan, and I get a lot of inspiration from film. Right. But I also am uh, very much a novelist, and so I'm. Uh, I just try to write the story as it comes out naturally. And um, what I have that filmmakers don't have the luxury of having is a complete view into the entire story up front. So um, right. I have total control. I don't have to answer to any studio executives. I don't have to uh, <laughs> get a $100 million budget in order to get the special effects that I want to get. I don't have to worry about season one being running and then being canceled before I can get to season two. So right. um, I'm, I'm the god of these uh, you know, 500 pages. And that allow I I really value that because I am the sort of writer who needs to know where the story is going and how it's going to end before I start writing it. Not to say right. that won't necessarily change, but I have a very big picture view of the story and the, uh, the, that I want to tell pretty early on. And I do think, in terms of a lot of the filmmaking narrative beats. But I also am able to get into the heads of the characters, and right. uh, that's that's the great advantage of prose is that you're not reliant on the actor to express the emotion. You can bring the reader straight into that character's brain and and show them what's happening. So right. I I don't honestly think that I feel at all hampered by particular mediums. I've I've written obviously I'm a novelist. At heart, um, I've written a few comics here and there. I love film, right? And a story is story. You have to adjust for the particular structure and medium that you're telling it in. And sometimes those come with different constraints, but also different freedoms. So, for example, I write a ton of, of fight scenes into my novels, and you would think right. those are hard to convey in prose compared to film, because you can see the action unfold on screen um, in film with fight choreography and it just sort of seamlessly goes into your eyeballs. Well, as like a, as a prose writer, I want to evoke the same spectacle that you might see in a fight scene in, in a movie, but I have to do it with words and I have to make it still seem very smooth and make you see it in your own head. So that doesn't dissuade me. I don't necessarily think, well, I can't do that. I just think, okay, how do I do that? How do I do that with the tools that I have? Right. I, I seem to recall reading an article you wrote where you talked about that. You talked about being able to really use the language of, say, the camera in a way, while still utilizing the expansiveness of prose. And I remember in one of the fights, the uh, there is a duel. Again, we, I won't spoil anything, but there is a duel between uh, two people. Yeah, I want to say at the end of, it doesn't matter, but um, there's a duel between two women. And I specifically recall the action starting very close in. So descriptions of, of blows and parries and things like this, but then you pull out and you describe the crowd viewing the fight and how the fighters are now moving too fast for them to be seen. And it's so, it's so seamless because it, again, it allows your mind, it gives, it gives you the structure and then allows your mind to fill in the rest of it. And it's so easy to, uh, to visualize. It's a great technique, but again, until you had kind of broken it down in that article, it, it had never occurred to me to see it that way, but it, it makes makes total sense. I think that comes for me 
a lot from watching and appreciating film and figuring out what they're doing and how I can achieve some of those effects in prose. And right. Very much what you mentioned, writers, prose writers have camera tricks, just like filmmakers do. But right. we achieve it with, with, with our sentences, including things like sentence length and word choice and perspective and changes in rhythm. And all of that uh, is, is just a way for us to change our camera angle. So going from Jade City to Jade War, uh, in again, in another article you wrote for uh, Chuck Wendig's uh, Terrible Minds, you talked about the challenges in writing a sequel and expanding that canvas. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. I was incredibly anxious about writing a sequel <laughs> that lived up to the first book because sure. I, I'm sure you have as well read a lot of second books or second or watched second films that yes. did n- not live up to the first. And there is almost, it's almost a cliche now that series have the, either the soggy second book or second book syndrome. Uh, and I was determined to avoid it. So I threw myself into studying sequels. I watched things back to film. I watched all of my favorite sequels and dissected why they worked. Aliens, Godfather Part 2, Terminator Part 2, and thought a lot about what makes a, a good sequel. Uh, right. And I think one of the struggles with writing a sequel is for many people who start writing a trilogy, if, they're, if the first book they write is the first book in a trilogy, that second book is being written for the first time under deadline right. with the expectations and feedback of readers and and just generally having to balance writing that second book with the sudden demands of being an author. So the second book in general is just difficult to write. And the second book in a trilogy is especially difficult to write. So um, writing the sequel, one of the things that I wanted to ensure was that each book in the trilogy has its own identity and its own arc. So the second book could not simply be a bridge between the first and the third book, which sometimes, you know, sequels that that uh, feel soggy do that. It feels like nothing particularly noteworthy happens in the middle book because there's this big climax at the end and there's the setup at the beginning, but the, the middle is, is just connecting them. Having just suffered through Halloween Kills, I know exactly what <laughs> you mean. <laughs> right. So uh, I had a framework going in where I said the first book is about the clan war in, in John Loon. The second is going to expand the story internationally. And the third is going to be an intergenerational story. And so each oh, book okay. has its own focus. And there's a spine to the narrative, which is this, this clan war that, and the family saga that stretches across the three books. But each book, if I've done my job right, should feel like it has its own narrative shape and that that shape was a little different between the three books. And the thing that I found about all the sequels that I love was that they all took risks. They all did something daring. They didn't just kind of continue the story as it was set up in the first installment. You know, Godfather Part 2 introduced an entirely different parallel storyline and used that to juxtapose Vito Corleone with Michael Corleone. Aliens took a genre hop from a horror, Did it ever. yeah, a, a horror um, story in the first movie to an action story in the second, 
and Terminator 2 flipped who the protagonist was, had Terminator go from the villain to being the hero. So they all took risks. So that was the thing that I kept in mind when I was writing Jade War was this has to take risks. You have, there have to be times that you gasp because you didn't expect something after reading the first book. So that was my, my approach. Hopefully it worked out. You mentioned uh, fan feedback and your books have quite a, a fandom built up around them now. And you mentioned having written fan f- fiction yourself. What is it like being now on the other side of that and seeing a fandom grow up around, around your work where people are drawing the characters? I have to assume they're writing their own fan fiction. Uh, what, what, what has that been like for you? It's been pretty humbling and amazing and flattering. I feel like the Greenbone Saga has a small but passionate fandom, and right. they really connect with the characters, and that's what motivates people to create their own works, which is incredible when you think about it, because I always feel very honored and humbled when I realize I wrote something that actually has inspired someone to mm. spend their own creative energy, whether that's art or fiction um, or making playlists or baking cakes. And, and it oh, comes wow. at all, all variety of, of um, creative endeavor, but they've, they've actually put their own time and energy and, and creativity into it. And that's just, that's a fantastic feeling because certainly as somebody who became a writer because of the stories that I loved and, and writing fan fiction about them, you know, maybe one day one of those people who's currently doing some creative work in the Greenbone Saga world inspires them to do more art or more writing. That's, that's amazing. That's, I mean, that's the best reaction I can honestly ever hope for. Absolutely. I know for me, um, I obviously I haven't written to the degree you have, but with the podcast, it's my day job. You know, we will sometimes get fan art and, and I have this, actually this lovely quilt that someone made us. It hangs on the back of my door here. And I find that whenever I'm having that moment where I think, Jesus, what am I doing with my life? It, you, you kind of look at stuff like that and you think, okay, well, someone out there is, is digging this. So I must be yes. doing something right. 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 You got to focus, I think, on, on the individual people that you've touched. And it, it can be hard when you have a profession like mine where you work in solitude for months, years, where you don't know if you're just shouting into the void. And yes. <laughs> sometimes you get that one email, that one uh, message or something comes over to you at that moment, right when you think I should just give up on this. And, you know, I've had a few moments like that where, uh, you know, some fan email showed up at a moment where I was like, this is impossible. What am I doing? Right. Um, so uh, those are, those are incredibly valuable. And, you know, if, if, uh, if if there is an author, work, or um, a podcast uh, that you listener love, like you know, it, it makes such a difference for creators to hear that. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. That's it, it. It just helps. You know, we're we're all artists. We all like that pat on the back. I always tell people because I, I tend to have a lot of independent musicians on the show, and I, I like to tell people, you know, it's it's good to re- you know, reach out and tell people because it it may seem like these people are distant, you know, because there's always been, I think for a long time, that dynamic between creator and audience, that there's a big gulf, you know, and I feel like that has really shrunk in the modern era. But at the same time, I think there's still that psychological barrier. And I think it's great to remind people, you can reach out and say, hi, you know, don't, you don't have to be weird about it. You can just say, Hey, I love what you do. And thank you. And that makes, makes a huge difference. 
I think especially now during the pandemic, when we don't have as many opportunities to meet people face to face, I have always gotten a lot of joy from doing signings and readings and book events and and meeting readers in person and musicians that you have interviewed. I'm sure it's been very hard for them to play in person. Yeah. So you know, it's been especially difficult to connect with your audience. Going forward, obviously, Jade Legacy is coming out on November 30th. Is that the plan? Yes. Knock on wood, supply chain issues, (laughs) uh, notwithstanding. Hopefully the book will be out on on shelves November 30th. It's crazy to think that that's a consideration we have to have now. Yeah. Yeah, that's incredible. A lot of authors that I know have have had their release dates delayed or just their books run out of, of stock and bookstores unable to get in copies of books. That's wild. If you don't mind me asking, are the bulk of your sales still uh, still physical copies? It's a, about half. half. Oh, okay. So there's definitely a very large percentage of my sales that is ebook. Right. And also audiobook. Oh, of course. Yeah. Actually, I would say between ebook and audiobook, it's probably at this point more than half. Interesting. And print is still a significant percentage. But it's been interesting because I think what has happened is there are now a lot of people who are picking up the ebook. And if they like the book, either, either through the ebook or, or downloaded from their library app, then they'll go out and find the physical book to have oh, on okay. their shelf. So there's my sense of it, and I've definitely not done any sort of research into the matter, right. is that, first of all, print is not going away. I, I still personally love having print books. But yeah, me too. The role of them is changing a little bit. I think there's more instant gratification getting books electronically or or listening to them an audiobook, uh, fitting it into your life in some way and then still and then for the books that you really want to have on your shelf then going and finding the physical copies of those. I mean, I always think too, we're living in smaller and smaller apartments, so we're going to have room for less and less shit at some point. So it just ebooks, you know, if you're going to buy something physical, it's got to be something you really like. Yeah. I have a, a special edition set of my books coming out and I'm just so excited about them because they're beautiful products. Um, I saw that. And- they looked incredible. They've got the stenciling on the, uh, on the pages. Yes. The f- foil and they've got uh, stenciled four edges, sprayed edges. So I'm, I- I'm just a sucker. I I considered it. Believe me, I considered it. But uh, again, the space issue, you know, I'm trying. Yeah. Yeah. As someone who collects movies and albums and things like this, at some point, my wife is just going to toss me out with all my stuff if I keep buying more. (laughs) So obviously that's coming out and that is the end of the Greenbone saga. Are you finished in that world or do you think at some point you may return to kick on? After I finished Jade Legacy, I couldn't quite leave right away. Right. I ended up writing a novella that's oh. a prequel standalone story to the Greenbone Saga that takes place before Jade City with different main characters, but with cameo appearances by a lot of the main cast from the trilogy. Oh, okay. So I am I'm re- that will come out next year. It's called The Jade Setter of John Loon and it, it's a it's a um It'll it'll also be limited print edition, and it's got some great artwork. So that is coming out, and then um, I had a bunch of 
short stuff because I ended up wanting to stay with the characters a little bit longer. So I started a Patreon and, and released some Greenville oh, Saga cool. short fiction through that. But as for new novels, no. The three that that will be out uh, once Jade Legacy releases are are it. And I'm certainly not ruling out doing more stories in that world, but it's also time for me to tackle some of the projects that I've backburnered for years while I've been working on this trilogy. Right. And has there been any pressure put on you to sort of, uh, now that you've, cause obviously you've changed genres a little bit as you, as you've gone on, is there, has there been any pressure to, you know, do a, do Jade City, but different, you know, do Ruby City, you know, do, you know, like, has there been any pressure from your publisher to, to follow that path? Fortunately not. My publisher has been very open to what new ideas I have. Um, okay. Potentially because I haven't, uh, I haven't told them yet what I'm going to be working on. So they're, they're, right now, their questions are more like, so what is it going to be? Fortunately, they are, they're very open to authors doing different things. And I certainly think that it's important as a creator to branch out and to make sure that I am feeling artistically fulfilled and not doing the same thing you know, over and over again. So I think that um, I like to think that artists' brands don't have to be narrow. That, right. you know, especially in, in this day and age that like peep readers will follow you to new ventures, even if they're, you know, I, I think there's a limit, right? Like I think if I sure. suddenly started writing Regency romance, people would be like, what are you doing? <laughs> but I'm not planning to do that. Fair. I think within the speculative fiction space, um, there, there are certainly readers who will cross over. Uh, between the subgenres, and that's, I hope that that is part of my brand as an author is that I like to play in uh, in those or interstitial spaces between the genres and and do things that are a little different. And hopefully, that's something my readers want from me. Right. Well, I again, I, I having read what I've read so far, I'm fascinated to see what comes next, whatever it is. Like again, I can't imagine I'm the only one. But as we wind down, I had a question for you. And that is, we spoke briefly earlier about the, the closing gap between audience and creator. You know, it's never been easier for the audience to reach out. And that brings me to the article you recently published on Medium, which is, I believe it was a Twitter is the worst reader. So something you said there, actually, I, I clipped the quote because I, I, it really resonated with me. I mean, I, I don't have the Twitter presence because I just don't, I'm socially awkward and I don't have the, I just don't have the brain for it. But I have seen people go viral and it seems like hell. And th this one uh, line you had here, Twitter removes the trust between writer and reader by flattening meaning to the single most offensive understanding and proliferating that version alone. And yes. And I, I wonder, could you talk a little bit about sort of what, wh where that came from? Well, honestly, it came from bad experiences on Twitter. And right. Twitter has been a boon and increasingly a bane for creators. On one hand, it has given us direct access to a lot of readership. Uh, and that has been what I have valued about it. Like you said, being able to, to have a fan show me a bit of fan art and being able to interact with them and also being able to connect with other writers and colleagues. Mm. Um, so that that has been the initial value of Twitter. But there is a, I think, now growing 
expectation of author accessibility and mm. also a increasing mental health toll from having to to do yes. that and to put up with the the toxic nonsense that we see on Twitter on a daily basis. Uh, yeah. Um and what's strange about being a creator who's trying to, you know, manage their their social media presence is there's a there's a certain degree of of dehumanization, right, that happens on Twitter where right. people don't see the people on the other side of that tweet as a human being. It's all just an, an anonymous swirl of oftentimes angry emotions and 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 things going viral and being misinterpreted and people being dogpiled. And so there's this, on one hand, as as a creator um, on Twitter, you're not a person anymore, but you're also not a corporation with a PR right. team and a social media manager that can create that kind of wall that Disney, you know, can create. So right. we're kind of, as independent creators, artists, musicians, writers, we're in this weird catch 22 with social media where do you really want your artistic life to be kind of swimming in this miasma of misinterpretation and rage tweeting and you know the negativity that exists on social media but do you want to lose the connection to to readers who actually are going to find your work like you found my books through twitter so yep. it is a very is it a difficult um, situation, I think, for a lot of for uh, creative professionals. And that article that I wrote, I wrote honestly for myself because I was working through that struggle of how, how do I deal with this? Um, yeah. And the toll that it's kind of taking on on me as a creative person, as, you know, as, just as a human being. And it resonated pretty strongly with, with a lot of people. Uh, and I had just so many writers, but also um, all sorts of creative professionals uh, commenting on how how much it hit a nerve with them. So it, I don't know what the answers are. I think that 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 shortening gap is some way is a double edged sword. Absolutely. Frankly, I don't. I think the majority of writers we're not in it to be media celebrities, right? We're in it because oh, yeah. we. I, I write books. And I enjoy writing books in the solitude of my uh, writing cubby all by myself as an introvert <laughs> for months, years at a time. And um, I want to know that it's being, it's reaching people, but I don't have any desire to, you know, be an online celebrity in any sense. And so that's, that's the struggle that, that we're facing. Um, and I, I think that it's just been exacerbated by the last couple of years. One of the things I always struggle with in regards to with Twitter or really any correspondence is as much like yourself, you know, I, I like being able to kind of hide away from the world and make my art and, you know, it, send it out to the, you know, with a podcast, for example, send it out to people and people, again, people are wonderful about saying, oh, this is, this has been valuable to me or it's affected me or I've, I've had this emotional reaction, but I start to, um, I start to worry that, you know, when I get a message, what if I respond to it? My because I, I want to respond to it. I don't want to be the guy who doesn't respond to things, but at the same time, I'm concerned it's going to turn into a conversation every time. Yes. And then it, it becomes this thing where you think I can't have a conversation with five people at once. And I, I think about the scale you're working at and it just quickly seems so unmanageable. It does often feel that way because you start going down the path of, well, I, if somebody says something 
nice to me online, I want to reply. I want to thank them. Sure. But uh, can I do that with everyone? <laughs> like, I'm going to be That's on. It. Then next thing you know, you're you know you you go down the rat hole. I'm checking Twitter every hour, uh, and I have a book to write. Uh, so there's that that consideration. And then there's also the, you don't want to be that person constantly online self-promoting and saying, just, you know, buy my book, read my book. So you want to have, you want to talk about other things. You want to mention the movies you're watching, but then you, those other topics can quickly spiral into, you know, now you've got people jumping down your throat because you said you like cheese and uh, (laughs) militant vegans are after you, you know? So you have, you have everything that you do feels like it's it's potentially fraught in some way. Yeah, absolutely. And and I know uh you know as as a man I, I there's a lot of shit I don't have to deal with. And I just again I I some of my uh, colleagues that are podcasting are are women and and the, again the the difference in correspondence is staggering and the difference in attitude. You know, we, we had a we had a guest on large the I'm sorry on on the ghost story guys once and uh, she was wonderful. I I want to have her back. She was brilliant. It's the first time we've ever had negative comments about a guest and they were completely unfounded. And I, I, the guy told me he was, I'm not even going to bother repeating it because it's just idiotic. But I heard this and I thought, I was on the call with this person. This is simply not true. And it was shocking to me to see the change in attitude. And again, I just, I can't imagine having to deal with that day in and day out um, in the world yeah. generally, but never mind the social media where it's right in your face. Yeah. No, it's, it's incredibly unfortunate. And, uh, and you do, you see it over and over again. Yeah. Well, let's, let's pivot to something a little happier before, before we head out here. You've mentioned that, uh, the, the, the green bone series was inspired by gangster films and martial arts films. And I just wondered, what are some of your favorites? Oh gosh. Uh, so let's see, you, you mentioned favorite crime drama. So on the Asian media side, one of my favorites has got to be infernal affairs. The film that got remade as the departed. But that right. I still I still really love uh, the first one and Election, which is a uh, Johnny oh, Toe film, uh, but it's a uh, triad succession drama. Oh, okay. And uh, and and that that's probably one of that's another one of my favorite films. There is um, a Japanese yakuza film called I believe it's Blood of Wolves. That okay. has serious Greenbone Saga vibes. Interesting. And it's it's about these two detectives, uh, and they're dealing with this Yakuza war. And if you can just kind of imagine, like these two detectives being John Loon, it's not that far off. Okay. <laughs> so there's there's that, and then of course, like a lot of the John Woo films from the eighties, like with Chow Young Fat. Uh, had a vibe that definitely went into uh, into the Greenbone saga. When I was listening, reading the books, you know, there's that particular look of the Hong Kong action films of that time, and that's exactly the lens through which I saw the events. You know, sort of imagining, you know, uh, tequila, you know, in right. the uh, in in like the tea house with the birds, and and like that, just something about like that, the, the the composition. That's always how I saw uh, saw the John Loon. So that that makes total sense. Yeah, I'm glad that came through on the page. Before I wrote the books, I watched this long series of Yakuza films called um, Battles Without Honor and Humanity. Oh, it's uh, Kinji Fukasaku? Yes, yes. Yes, incredible. Yeah, 
Uh, so if you actually look at the map of John Loon in the books, right. uh, I have a little homage to John Woo, Johnny Toe, and Kinji Fukasaka in the, in the map. Um, oh, so okay. it's actually, it's like the road atlas. It's like the Wu Toe Fukasaki, like road atlas. <laughs> like, oh, <laughs> that's great. <laughs> made a little shout all. out to those filmmakers in, in, Amazing. in my book. Let's see. And then on the Western uh, media side, of course, like The Godfather being the family saga epic sure. influenced uh, the novels a lot. Goodfellas, Scarface, The Untouchables, of course. Yeah. Right. So The Untouchables. Right. Great uh, staircase scene. Love that. Oh, and then, um, and then on the, uh, the action side, there's so many, but the raid films with all oh, the sea lot knife fighting yes definitely um got some some talon knife fighting influence out of those films of course yeah the i have you seen the night comes for us timo chahanto's the night comes for us no i haven't oh it's on netflix uh i believe it's a netflix exclusive there's a lot of machete fighting right and right it is brutal in places but Timo stuff is is always quite bloody. But uh, this oh, is yeah. more martial arts than horror. But there is still that horror element just in the in the For severity sure. of the wounds being dealt. Right, right. Um, Thirteen Assassins is another film which is like a Tarantino esque level of samurai warfare. <laughs> that's a, that's another film with some incredible action in it. That's another one that I, th- I feel really effectively weaves in horror elements because I, I always yeah. remember the scene where the woman has oh, lost her arms and legs and she's painting oh, with her mouth. Oh, jeez, yeah. It's haunting. It's, uh, the, yes, nightmarish. Fonda, thank you so much for being here. This has been this has been a ton of fun. I've again, I'm a, I'm a big fan of your books and I really can't wait for Jade Legacy. I, I as soon as I finished War, I pre-ordered it and I am deeply excited for the end of the month. Where can everyone find you online? Well, my website is fondalee.com. I also have a Patreon. I have a author newsletter for quarterly updates. And uh, even though I'm trying to pull back, like, you can still find me on social media. I'm on uh, Instagram at fonda.lee and Twitter at fondajade. Brilliant. Well, the book is Jade Legacy. It'll be available from November 30th. Pick up your copy in physical, Kindle, audiobook. Hell, pick up all three. Remember, folks, vote with your dollars. It's, it's nice to reach out to artists and tell them you like them, but it also helps if you support their art. So, Fonda, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Brennan. And that's the ballgame. Don't forget to pick up your copies of the Green Bone Saga. That's Jade City, Jade War, and the upcoming Jade Legacy, available at the end of this month. You can find those everywhere. Fine books are sold. I picked up Kindle copies, but there's also physical and audiobook. So you've got some choices. Check the show notes for links to Fonda's website and her social media, and I will also include a link to an Instagram post about those limited edition hardcover sets she was talking about. Hey, quick correction. That box set is in fact already for sale from Illumicrate, and I've included a direct link in the show notes. If you read the books and you like them, and I think you will, because they are very, very nice. I'm a fan of folio editions. If you don't know folio editions and you're a book person, check them out. Although. Depending on how much spare income you have, you might not want to do that. But uh, if you do like folio editions, these are along those lines. Very, very lovely stuff. All right, so before we get to the outro stuff, I actually have another little treat for you. 
If you've been listening for a while, you'll know that this show began as a weekly music show on FM radio. It evolved over the course of the last, uh, I guess last two years, and is the version you are presently listening to. However, music is still near and dear to my heart, as you can no doubt tell by the number of musicians we've spoken to. And of course, last week I spoke to Elliot Wilder from The Revenants, and we played the first single off his latest album, Intruder. Well, this week I was contacted by Freaksville Records. They are the representatives for the band Turquoise, who I used to play back in my radio days, and they wanted to share their latest single. And I thought, well, why not pass it along to you folks? So, hot off the presses, straight out of Brussels, Belgium, this is Turquoise and Tumult. And we're back. That was Turquoise and Tumult from their latest single, Voix Off. And let's face it, my French is not great, so I'm probably getting that wrong. But if you liked what you heard, check out the rest of their stuff at turquoisemusic.bandcamp.com or check the link in the show notes. If you've got a band you want to hear yourself in this part of the show, I'm open to it. 
shoot me an email at largelythetruth at gmail.com and let's talk. Thanks again to Fonda Lee for taking the time. Thanks too to Peter Kursov of Pizanta Music for my fabulous theme song. You can find him online at nightharvestrecordings.com or by searching for Pizanta Music wherever you stream your tunes. And finally, thank you for listening. Without you, there wouldn't be much point. Until next time, I hope the night takes you to the same strange and wonderful places it takes me. And remember, if you're not sure what comes next, put a call out into the dark. You never know who's going to pick up. I'll see you next time.